Well, here on this Sunday that we mark the graduations of many of those in the church, it's a Sunday to declare that endings make a difference. You know, this is a season when two long narrative storylines are being brought to their conclusion. We have the movie Avengers uh, Endgame, which tells the conclusion of a story, at least for now, of Marvel superheroes that began with the the, uh, movie Iron Man 10 years ago. And we also have the final season of the HBO television series Game of Thrones. Now, even if you're not a fan of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, you probably heard of the superhero characters of Captain America and Iron Man, Thor, and Black Widow. For 10 years now, Hollywood has been pumping out one blockbuster movie after another that tell the story of these and related characters, all leading up to a two-part finale the Avengers Affinity War, and then this spring, Avengers Endgame. That film has already been setting some box office records. At the same time, over these last 10 years, HBO has been telling the story of the struggle over who will sit on the Iron Throne of Westeros, the land of dragons and white walkers and heaps of gratuitous violence. Game of Thrones is in its final season, and the last episode premieres tonight. Having gotten to know the character and storylines of such movies and television shows, fans want to know how how will it all end? What will happen to each of the characters? What will the ending be? Well, turns out that's a question we have in life as well. We'd all like to know how our story will turn out. For that matter, we'd like to know how the story for all humanity will turn out. And this is what we get a glimpse of here in the last two chapters of the book of Revelation. How will it all turn out in the end? Spoiler alert, God wins. Now, I remember when I was younger, I heard about a magical kingdom in a faraway land somewhere to the south. In that land, Dumbo elephants went around in the sky, and teacups were large enough that you could ride in them, and there was a ride called Space Mountain. It sounded wonderful. When I was 14 years old, my family was living in Illinois, and my parents told me and my two brothers that we would be making a grand vacation that year. We were going to be going to one of two places. We might go to Florida to visit Walt Disney World, or we might go to visit Washington, D.C. Now, I and my brothers, we wanted to go to Walt Disney World, but Mom and Dad decided we'd go to Washington, D.C. in August. I thought it was interesting, I suppose, to visit all the monuments and walk up all the stairs and see the statue and then walk back down. But it just didn't measure up to what Walt Disney World would be, at least in my imagination. Now, later on, when I was much older, I did go to visit Walt Disney World. I found it to be enjoyable and remarkable, to be sure, a nice place. But there was, it was nowhere near as magical as I expected it to be. There were some hot and humid days in southern Florida. There was waiting in lines to get on Space Mountain, and it turns out that I was just a little too tall to ride in that flying Dumbo ride. What a disappointment. Now, John, the author of the book of Revelation, shares a vision that has been given from God. 
The vision shows what God has in mind for all humankind, including all of creation itself. God says to John, behold, I am making all things new. It's a vision that's shared with a community that was under duress and besieged and full of fear. The church in the day in which this letter was written was facing persecution from without and doubts and division from within. The promise that is shared with John is that God will create something new that will replace all that is broken. God will take the world that we know and replace it with a new heaven and a new earth. And in the end, God will win. God will take what we have and restore it to all that it was intended to be. And here's what that will look like. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. God will wipe away every tear. And best of all, God will make a home with mortals. God will be present with each of us and for each of us. Now, this is not just the ending of that book of the Bible, or even the Bible as a whole. John tells us that this is the end that was intended for all of creation. It's the culmination of the story that began with Genesis 1-1 when we read, In the beginning, God created the world. This is at the other end, the finale, the conclusion, and what we hear of it is glorious. John, the author of the book of Revelation, describes the new Jerusalem, the city that has been made and fashioned by God, coming down to be at the center of the world. God And John extols the beauty and perfection of this city, challenging the capacities of human speech. He gives us some description of its shape and size, and the most prominent features in that city. But these details are not what's important. What is most important is what God will accomplish in the end and how that victory shapes each and every moment that leads up to it. Now, I'll let you in on something of a surprise here. According to the book of Revelation, you and I won't be lifted up to heaven after we die. In fact, nobody will. Rather, John tells us that God's plan is to bring heaven down to earth. God goes down, comes down to earth to dwell with human beings. The new Jerusalem descends from heaven, we're told, and God will make a home among mortals. Now, I don't think that's exactly what I learned in Sunday school when I was a child. I don't think my Sunday school teacher was wrong, by the way. Maybe it's just that God's plans turn out to be richer and more complicated than she let on. And this particular passage tells it just a little differently than other parts of the Bible. But that's okay, because God's got it all worked out. There is, for example, no prediction about how the end times will happen here in this chapter. No mention of the rapture. No predictions about how exactly the process will unfold. But there is a clear and profound promise that God makes with all humanity. God promises to bring a new heaven and a new earth to replace what we know now. God promises to dwell with us and be with us. And God will offer healing and a new sort of human community. The modern city of Jerusalem is the focus of national identity and faith and hope in the nation of Israel today. But you know, if you go and visit Jerusalem today, it's also a place of deep division and sorrow. Palestinians look across a wall made of concrete and barbed wire 
at places that they used to call their own homes. People living in Jerusalem today are deeply divided by politics and fear and military checkpoints. I've been there. I've seen it for myself. But in the book of Revelation, we're told of something different. A new Jerusalem is promised. It comes down from heaven, comes down having been fashioned by God's hands. And the new Jerusalem is altogether different from the old Jerusalem and even the present day Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem is about a different sort of community. This new creation is framed by God's speech. See, I am making all things new. God brings it into being by God's very word. God's new creation will replace this deadly, broken, stained, angry, sick, evil, painful world we know. The church is called to be on the side of what God is doing and to be part of this new creation that God is fashioning. And the church is called to make a choice. The church is called to choose between what God offers and what the world offers. To choose what God offers means that we have to die to our present life and live into the newness of life that is offered to us in Christ Jesus. We begin to live into that promise of a new heaven and a new earth instead of just putting up with the way things are right now with all its present brokenness and sorrow. Now, I think we would all know what it is we would choose. If we had God's ways versus human ways, we would choose God's ways. But you know, that can be an exceedingly hard choice to make when we see what is around us. To those of us who live comfortable lives of ease and prosperity, at least in comparison with the rest of the world, may feel there's no need to consider a new heaven and a new earth because what we have now is good enough. We might choose to stick with what it is the world offers us now. But when we think deeper, when we consider the ways in which people are exploited and children go hungry and hearts are broken and things are not right in this world, then the promise of a new Jerusalem becomes even more valuable than we first thought. Then we might be open to the choice that God provides we might choose to accept it for ourselves as well as wish to see it offered to everyone else. What we learn of the New Jerusalem here in John's writing serves a purpose beyond just telling us what happens at the end of the story. This vision can help us recognize glimpses of heaven when they intrude upon our lives in the here and now. When we live by faith, guess what? Heaven is not some far-off country we can catch glimpses of it in our lives, the way we live them now. We can find ourselves dwelling in the new Jerusalem, some of the time at least, often when we least expect it. What is life like in this new Jerusalem? How does John describe it for us? Well, first off, we could say that heaven is a community. The vision is not a picture of pastoral wilderness or open countryside. Neither is it a place where people live in isolation. Rather, the image is of a city. Isn't that interesting? A community of people living in close proximity, interconnected in the way they live out their lives, regularly in conversation and commerce with one another. That's what it is to be a community, a city. When much of the Old Testament and New Testament speaks to a people who are living in agricultural and rural life, The vision that is given to John is about a certain kind of city. Why is that? 
Is it that way because it is that way? Because the life God intends for us means that we're in relationship with one another. Rich and rewarding relationships connect us together. The story of humankind in the Bible really moves from a garden where there is only one person and then just two on to the ending where we find a vast city with a cosmopolitan population, a new Jerusalem, people living together in harmony. It means that we really need to put away any notions of heaven that has to do with isolation. God made us to be social creatures And even the most introverted and self-reliant among us really do need connection with others. Now, maybe we don't need to expect that everyone takes a turn at the karaoke machine. Maybe everybody doesn't have to be adept at public speaking, but we all need each other. We all are connected. And there's something that others add to our lives that make our lives richer. That's how God made us. That's how God intends us to live according to a vision that is shared with John. And God, who made us in God's own image, wants us to be present with each other and for each other. The New Jerusalem described here by John is a cosmopolitan city with people that come from all sorts of places and backgrounds. It's the dwelling place of the God who delights in diversity. If you want a foretaste of heaven a little nibble to whet your appetite for things to come, here's a suggestion. Go out on a fine summer day to a city park where there are lots of families and people gathered together. Catch the spirit where there in the hubbub and the conviviality you see people interacting with each other. Go to a playground where dozens of kids dash about in perpetual motion, each in a different trajectory, and yet enjoying doing so with others. There in such a place, along with the book readers and the knitters, the barbecue experts and the people on their cell phone, you will find a slice of what heaven is like, a gathering of all sorts of people brought together by their creator, sharing in community. A second thing that we might note about this plan that God has in mind for us is that heaven is a place not only of community and sharing, but it's a place of healing also. John points to this as he describes the New Jerusalem, especially a little bit later on from the part that we heard read for us in chapter 21. John talks about the city that is that has a river running right through the middle of it, a beautiful river, the river of the water of life, he describes it. On the banks of this river appear rows of magnificent trees, and this is the tree of life that bears fruit not just once a year or twice a year, but every single month of the year. A super true tree, astoundingly fruitful and rich and ripe. Then John slips in a kicker that we might miss if we're not paying attention. He tells us that the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. Imagine that, the healing of the nations. Heaven has medicine for all the wounds that separate and scar the nations on the earth. In the New Jerusalem, old and deep antagonisms no longer produce their poison. Traditional enemies find that they can live peaceably with one another. And what happens on the largest level also happens to us as individuals as well. Hatred gives way to love. Brokenness gives way to wholeness. Wounds are healed. 
That means that when instead of fighting over things that divide us, like politics and sexual orientation and clan, we are all healed and brought together under the cross. We have the promise that God will wipe away every tear. This is surely one of the most moving images of Scripture, thinking of God having the kindness and the tenderness to wipe away the tears from our eyes. But you know, the promise is not only that God will wipe away the tears that might happen to linger on our cheeks, but God will reach back even in history to wipe away all the painful tears that have ever been shed. God will not just comfort and help us to forget the bad things, but God will redeem the whole story of human history. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. God will bring healing and restoration and peace to all the world. And the best part of this is that you and I don't have to wait around passively for this to come about. We don't have to leave it up to God alone to do. We find that God gives us the power to live in some new ways now. And we can leave behind what is evil and broken, and we might make our grateful offerings to the Lord today. We might live in that new Jerusalem here and now. Here's a suggestion. If you want to see a bit of heaven on earth, go about the work that Jesus calls you to do. Work for justice and peace right where you are. Practice love for your neighbor, even when it's not easy or convenient. Care for creation and so honor the creator. Forgive someone who does not deserve it. Maybe even if it's yourself. When you do such things, you will catch a glimpse of heaven's glimmer. You will be spending time in the new Jerusalem that God has promised. It may happen in any of countless ways. It may come as a strange warming of the heart, a refreshment of hope and courage, the assurance that God is present and available to us in times of hardship. It may be found in beauty that beguiles and delights. The creator of all things, the Lord of time and space, is versatile in giving us glimpses of that great city that is promised. We cannot dictate when these glimpses of heaven might happen, but we can be open to recognize them and welcome them when they come. We can open the eyes of our heart to see all that God has planned for those who love and follow Christ. So friends, endings make a difference. In the end, we find that God is preparing a place for us, a community and a place of healing. God is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. We can hope for heaven in all its fullness to arrive, but we can also enjoy the glimpses that come our way now, those glimpses of healing and community that can encourage us to live for Christ in the day we have before us. Then, when the final heaven comes, we might recognize that this is not such a new and unfamiliar place. Instead, we will recognize it as our one true home. So may it be. Amen.